Hello, I am Tim Malloy, and welcome to Movie Maker. I am pronouncing the name of this podcast in that very silly, very stupid way to make you think about sound. And the reason we're thinking about sound is because our guest today, Corey Choi, is an absolute expert in sound. He's the director and co-writer of the new film, Esme My Love, a hypnotic story that does fascinating things with time and sound. If you're interested in DIY, bold, and rather experimental movie making within the thriller genre, I think you will like this one a lot. There are some surprises in Esme, and I don't want to ruin them. So I'm going to hew very closely to the official description you yourself can find on IMDb, and it goes a little something like this. When Hannah, played by Stacey Wexstein, sees signs of a painful terminal illness in her aloof daughter, Esme, played by Audrey Grace Marshall, she takes her to their abandoned family farm in a desperate attempt to connect before they say goodbye. Corey co-wrote it with Laura Allen. It's beautifully shot by Fletcher Wolf. I don't always mention the DP. I should, but this time I definitely should because it looks beautiful. And I'll let Corey talk a little bit more about the rest of his team. Besides directing and co-writing Esme My Love, Corey is also the founder of New York City's Silver Sound, the Emmy Award-winning location sound team and post-production facility. I had the pleasure of visiting it last year and it is very impressive. He talks about how his work as a top sound designer helped hone the narrative of Esme My Love. Also, I'd be remiss not to mention that Corey did not record or engineer this intro that you're listening to right now. This is all me in a little studio in Massachusetts. But he did record our interview, which sounds markedly better than what you're hearing right now. You'll get to enjoy that in just a second. You can find Esme My Love on Vudu and Toomey and wherever you get videos on demand, from Apple to Amazon to all the usual suspects. Here's a filmmaker I always love talking with. Corey Choi, director and writer of Esme My Love. Welcome to Movie Maker. It is a delight to talk with you again. Um, can you start off by just telling people who you are and what Esme My Love is? Yes, um, I'm Corey Choi. I'm a director and also a sound re-recording mixer and designer out of Silver Sound. And Esme My Love is my directorial uh, narrative feature debut. I love how personal this movie is because although it's not necessarily your story, there are so many elements of you and so many elements, especially musically, uh, that go back to just who you are and how you became a sound designer and how you became a filmmaker. Can you talk about the things that happened when you were like 12, 13, 14 years old growing up in Silver Springs, Maryland, that led to this movie? Um, That's a big question. I, I can tell you some <laughs> of the things that are in the movie um that that are that are that were part of my life from back then um one of the my father's a musician and my mother's a musician and i ended up playing a lot of music in middle school and high school as well and so one of the things that was really unique about my situation growing up is i had access to a microphone and a computer that you could record into. And uh, that was a really kind of exciting thing. I mean, for for just to have at your house, you know, to be able to record into a computer. Um, yeah. And so one of the first songs that I ever recorded was written by my friend Jake. 
at the time, and it was sung by a mutual friend of ours, Charlotte, and the name of the song was Atlantis. It was the first song I ever recorded, and um, wow. during that process, you know, Charlotte and I were friends, but I really just fell in love with her voice musically, and we ended up playing a lot of music and writing together throughout uh, high school. And subsequently, many, many, many years later, Charlotte is one of the composers on my film. And I knew from the very beginning when I started conceiving of the film and thought about the, the final shot for the film, I knew that I wanted that song, Atlantis, to be what ended the film. So very, very early on, I knew that I wanted Charlotte to sing Atlantis at the at the end of the film. I originally went and looked for the first recording that we did and was going oh. to consider using that um, after and it was really hard to try to find. I wasn't able to actually find a, a high quality copy of it. What I had to do was I found an old website of mine using the Wayback Machine. And, oh my God. But it was a real audio recording, which was just horribly compressed and there was no way we could use it. Um, but it was kind but it's of- It's like 20 years old. Things on the internet never die. <laughs> I mean, it was kind of wild that I was able to find it. Uh, I don't know. Anybody who's had a GeoCities knows lots of, thing on, lots of things on the internet <laughs> dies. Um, so yes and no. Um, but yeah, I think this was a, it wasn't a- GeoCities, but it was a, maybe a MySpace or, or something similar to that. Um, and uh, yeah, so long story short, uh, the voice that haunted me and and really just like embodied, you know, a very formative part of my life and, and, and just like represented a lot of things about youth and, and love and, um, you know, beautiful emotions with Charlotte's voice. And that's what I knew I really wanted to represent some of the emotions in this film, Esme, my love. Wow. There's a lot there, uh, including the fact that MySpace apparently still exists somewhere and I have to go remember my password and clean a lot of things up. Um, <laughs> that's insane. Well, it was, re uh, <laughs> it was rebooted for, I think by Justin Timberlake, if I'm not mistaken, but it's a complete, right. it's a complete, uh, revival so your old stuff is not there so you don't need to worry you don't need to worry your your stp like tribute page is is no longer there <laughs> so your work with sound as really like an adolescent leads into the creation of your studio um which you start when you're about 18 years old is that right yeah more or less so when i was in high school um i was i was really into music um i also had the privilege and just kind of uh, of having early access to macromedia flash so mm. my father was a programmer as well as a musician and so mm. i ended up in middle school programming two video games and one was called chickenator 2000 and it was hosted on a site called newgrounds uh it's a little point like a little side scrolling shooter and through that process, I really fell in love with animation, ended up going to film school, thinking I wanted to be an animator, um, and then realizing that I wasn't very good at drawing. I'm okay at animating, but I'm not that great at drawing, and <laughs> 3D wasn't for me. So 
kind of ended up in film school and then made a, a, a lateral movement into sound because I had a lot of experience with the music recording technology. And at the time, the prosumer music recording technology was just leagues ahead of where the film, uh, the film, uh, what, what, what the industry standard was really people were running around with these clunky, huge PD4 DAT recorders, which were super problematic because people's footage kept getting erased when they put it on the floor of the subway. And they were just these big machines that didn't sound that great. And they were clunky. And, uh, I came in and I said, well, look, you know, the, the music world has been multi-tracking, not just stereo, but, you know, many tracks on computers for years. Why don't we bring this to film? And, um, Mm. a lot of the students around me, we're like, what? That doesn't make sense. Why would you record more than one or two tracks? It's like, well, you could put yeah. each, you know, the, the, again, the music world was way ahead technologically. And so when I started doing this, um, people around me began to take notice. And for a couple of years, uh, you know, I was the one in town who was, you know, in the whatever circle that I was in, you know, undergrad NYU film class uh, of, the, of of that year, I was the one who was doing the multi-tracking on the computer. And so... Uh, I got to meet a lot of uh, a lot of ambitious film students who didn't want to just go with what was given to them in the normal allotment by the school, but they wanted to try to do a little bit more. And so I ended up finding myself surrounded by people who really wanted to push the envelope audio-wise, and that kind of led into sound design and mix, which made it made it really fun. And and that's why uh, because I was doing so much work in sound. Um, it kind of like made sense to uh, for me at, at the time to open Silver Sound, which was a focus on bringing films all the way from pre-production through post-production sonically. Which for people listening is basically in the heart of Manhattan. Um, you're on what about, do you, do you give your address out? You're, yeah, the, we're 28 uh, West 27th Street. So we're on 27th between 6th and Broadway. And f- a fun little fact is uh, we took over the space from Larry Um our original space was in the old Technicolor building on 321 West 44th oh. Street. And then um, we got Kushnered and the New York Observer took our space. Um, <laughs> and then um, we we moved over to Larry's old spot. And fun fact is Larry used to do all of the dubbing, the American dubbing for the show Pokemon. And he wrote oh. the American theme song for many Japanese cartoon shows, the American version of the theme song. So he wrote the theme song for Hello Kitty, Hello Kitty, Ultraman, also did a lot of Pokemon scoring. Um, so he, when he was moving out, because Pokemon moved its recording, uh, they basically moved the voice recording contract over to Duart. So Larry said, oh, time for me to retire. We took over and we we kind of revamped the whole space here. And we've been here ever since. But you since. have that... You have that energy in the walls. I love that. The <laughs> building sort of retains Pokemon power. That's so cool. Oh my god! You got to collect I, and them Hello all. Kitty power. Yeah, you got. <laughs> when we were clearing out the closet for from Larry, we found this old closet of all his cue sheets from you know four hundred anime shows. And one of the things that we found was the master recordings for the Hello Kitty theme song that he had done, and it was really cool. Um, and then we also found in the back of the the closet was like a. Um, a poster with all the different Pokemon and it was signed by all the American actors under their Pokemon, which was really fun. Oh my God. So it's like you take over the building and make money on it. 
Um, well, it's funny. At the time, I was just like, what am I going to do with all this stuff? So I, I think I sent the poster out to one of my cousins. I was like, they, my younger cousins, like, they like this thing. Um, and I didn't realize it was a, you know, potentially a, a collectible or whatever. I was just like, I got to get this stuff out of here. Uh, unfortunately, all those freaking tapes uh, from the from the anime, I mean, just we just couldn't keep them. So they they wow. mainly got in whatever nobody, whatever anybody didn't want to take home with them just got recycled. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, well, that's very heartbreaking, okay. right? Uh, <laughs> back to your movie. Um as we love, one thing I love about this film is that people say that being a director and being a filmmaker requires everything you've done before in your life. You have to pour those skills into your first film. And that seems really true with this one because you went on to work in a lot of music videos. Um, maybe you could talk about some of the people you worked with, but one of those music videos leads pretty directly to making this film. Yeah. Um, you know, when you when you work in the film industry for you know, a good number of years, you do meet the people around and you always kind of keep in the back of your mind, when I direct, this is who I want to be working with for X, Y, Z reasons, or this is something I want to incorporate into my film. We shot a music video, actually several music videos um, in conjunction with a music video festival that we did at Silver Sound. It was called Silver Sound Showdown. And every year we ended up producing a music video and we ended up going to Hague, New York, um, specifically the Delarm family farm, Alex, who was a drummer in the band that was recording the music video, um, lived up there. It was his family farm and it was just the perfect place to shoot a music video. We owned the space. There was a lot of land. Nobody bothered you. You could make much as much noise as you wanted. And it was just drop dead gorgeous and it stuck in my head yeah. for a really really long time that's where we ended up uh filming esme my love and when i had a the bones of a script laura who was my script writing partner and i actually went up to the space with the bones of our script and we spent three days there and or two days there and we walked around and redid the script for the space itself so mm. a lot of people who watched the film say, wow, it's, it, it really feels like it was meant to be told here. And it, it, it was, it was, it was written for the space. And that was a great privilege. Uh, and also I think, um, just something exciting to, to be able to do with a low budget film, you know, you don't have the wherewithal to create your own physical world. So, uh, I guess a nice hack is to find an amazing space and write to it. Yeah, you did that beautifully. And it's such a mesmerizing film because it really is like you're going on a hike or an extended camping trip with these two people and getting completely just, you know, hallucinated into their world. I mean, it really is one of those movies where you're entering a dream and you're not coming out until the movie's over. And it really just does sweep over you. The sound is, of course, part of that, but the visuals, the incredibly lush visuals are a huge part of that, too. Can you talk about how you decided on those two characters, how you decided on the predicament that they're in? Um, yeah. I don't know how much you want to give away about what happens, but I understand it's rooted in some history of that land too. Oh, absolutely. So, um, well, there's a lot of things that go into the film, like you mentioned about hiking. As someone who has taken some extended hikes um, with you know, just one other person, a few times 
your your mind really begins to wander and 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 focus at the same time in a really weird way and everything kind of falls away when you're deep enough you don't hear any sounds of the city you don't hear any any sounds of civilization at all it's just your your own heartbeat and your footsteps and some breathing and maybe the 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 person you're with's breathing and footsteps and you can go for hours and hours just almost in 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 complete silence and really for the first time notice uh be hyper aware of the world as it is but also yourself and your your own life and so um it's just a very interesting moment so that's one thing i wanted to incorporate into into the movie and then there were a lot of things uh well i think there were some family stories right yeah so that then there's a story that i was told specifically by a woman about an encounter that she had with an angel and she told me on that land no, no, just a, okay. just a story that she about okay. an encounter that she had with an angel, and it was with her daughter, her young daughter. And the story that she told me, um, when she told it to me, was absolutely frightening, uh, terrifying. Actually, mm. what she said was, when I first had my daughter, um, my young, my eldest daughter, uh, you know, she was young, maybe one or two, and she would you know, often toddle down the hallway at night and come by and crawl into the bed. Um, and one time she's toddling down the hallway and I look up and there's someone behind her following her. Oh my God. And I've never seen this person before. And it looks like she's not aware. She wasn't aware that she was being followed. And she stands in the doorway and this figure comes behind her and stands behind her and raises her finger to her lips and goes shh and smiles at me and i'm thinking this is the most terrifying thing i've ever heard in my life if that happened to me i'd I'd start screaming i'd throw something whatever and she goes no no i was i was filled with the most amazing feeling in my life it was the most amazing sense of peace in my life because I knew that this was an angel and this was a sign from God that everything was meant to be in my motherhood. And I'm just, every time I hear the story, I'm like, this is terrifying, but she, this was a religious moment. She saw the face of God. It was the most beautiful moment in her life. And something about that really struck me that two people can experience something completely, completely different. And I'm sure the daughter's experience is completely different. So that really stuck in my head. And I really wanted to explore the mother-daughter relationship after that. And then then specifically, just as this daughter grew up and had a relationship with her mother, you know, it it was just, it was a very interesting relationship. And there's lots of, you know, everybody has mommy issues. Um, But um, I really wanted to explore the mother-daughter relationship. So then when I went started beginning to write and we went up to Hague. We met the town historian, Sally, mm. and she starts telling us just about her family's history. And we're like, oh yeah, we need to, the mother and daughter now are part of this family, you know, <laughs> and, and it's going to be, it's going to be filmed here. And, you know, and then along the way, I just incorporated in in the film, there's a lot of things about my own experiences growing up, um, 
you know, obviously I wasn't a little girl, but as a young child, a lot of things about growing up was incorporated in this film and kind of all the things uh, around me and then uh, were began to be incorporated and all the people that I met along the way, I said, oh, I know that Fletcher Wolf is going to be my cinematographer. I really want to work with her. You know, I started mm. adding all the pieces. And what's really funny is when we had a script and we had a space, uh, the people I was collaborating with would really fall in love with the project and mm -hmm. sometimes i would have an idea and they would go oh no no it has to go this way <laughs> and i'd be like mm. wait aren't aren't i directing this and they're like yeah but <laughs> if you want to bring me on like we're doing this together and it has to be this way and <laughs> i was oh, like wow and, and i'd be like well and it was just every step of the way, all the collaborators <laughs> fell in love with the story and the place and really added something of themselves to it. So it started out with a lot of me and then became an amalgamation of many people. How do you handle that as a director? I mean, how do you decide what to give up and what to share? And did it, do you feel that it ultimately came out better because you listened to all of your collaborators? Well, I didn't listen to all of my collaborators, but I did incorporate a lot of, I, I did listen to many of my collaborators. Um, yeah. Uh, it's difficult. It was not something that I was expecting, right? The, people think of a film set and the film process at, you know, the auteur system where you have someone who's kind of, I, this is my vision and I'm laying this down and this is how it's going to go. And everybody's kind of serving this one very hierarchical vision. And there's a lot to be said for that because you can make decisions and, and get things done. Um, but that assumes that that one person is commanding many, 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 and resources usually with because they have the backing of a studio that just has more money than you could possibly ever spend physically you know you know and right. so when you don't have that when you're making an independent film um you need to be able to convince the people you're working with that this project is going to be worth it for them um, I didn't not pay people, but I paid people indie rates, which is very, very low compared to a studio film. And so there had right. to be something in it for them. Um, and in this case, I was very, very pleased that so many people fell in love with the project. Um, it made for some very, very difficult moments, particularly uh, sometimes on set even. Um, but hmm. the, the set was pretty fraught uh, with emotion. But even even in editing, uh, I it took me a really long time to find the right editor. And then when I found the right editor, it wasn't one person. It was two people, um, because what would happen when I was editing is I'd be like, OK, let's put together a, um, you know, uh, a, an assembly based on the script. And at some point before we got to the end of the assembly, in inevitably the editor I was working with at the time be like, well, actually it has to go this way instead. And, <laughs> and I was like, well, can we just get the assembly done? And then we'll, we'll, we'll talk about it and reorder. And they're like, no, 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 it has to go this way. And I was like, okay, well, I, we got to have the assembly. I can't think without it. And, and inevitably oh. I actually had to go through like five or six different <laughs> editors before I could find someone who would even just take me to an assembly. Um, and what was, what's really funny is it wasn't because they were mean or bad people. It's because they just felt so strongly about the material. And mm. when I got um, my two editors, one of the really wonderful things I did in the process is I kept them completely separate for the first three fourths of our collaboration. And what happened is when I, come to a wall where somebody was like, no, it's got to go this way. I'd say, let's put a pin in it. 
I take it to the mm. other editor, work on it, and then get to where I want it to go and then take it back and be like, in the meantime, let's work on this other thing. And so I was finally able to get an assembly by working from the beginning of the film forward with one editor and from the back of the film to the middle and meeting in the middle. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and it was, it was a little bit arduous, but it, it got us there. And, um, you know, I think your original question was it, you know, how does it affect the film? Um, I think everybody, every single person who collaborated on this film brought something very special to it. And I was lucky to be able to find a place where I felt, I didn't feel like I was giving anything up. Sometimes I felt like I learned something and was even adding to it. I think yeah. every, every step of the way was, was, um, it wasn't always easy. And like I said, sometimes it was pretty fraught emotionally, but inevitably it, it did bring us to a better place. Can you talk about what some of the emotional things were, like what people disagreed on? Oh, so many things. Um, <laughs> this is a very, um, it's a magical movie. It's also a mystery and a thriller. And yeah, a lot of the talk was just how direct we needed to be to the audience to get and how much information and how much explicit information we need to get needed to give the the audience um but then some people just wanted to change what the actual story was they're like mm. we know we wrote this but maybe it should really be this um, <laughs> um and you're out there with a crew in yeah, the woods yeah right <laughs> and you also you have the entire thing in your head of how it needs to go and how it needs to pay off and other people may not necessarily have that so one thing that i did very early because i don't have a visual way i, I don't think visually um i think I just don't have visual memory, but um, I do plan visuals, but like, that's why working with Fletcher was so great. But one thing that I did before I went out on set is I recorded all of the dialogue for the film as MP3s in the booth. And before we went and actually rehearsed the scene in the space, I would listen to what we had recorded and right. it, would, it would kind of like help me like ground myself emotionally in the scene. But then we would get to the physical space and then we would figure out the blocking together. And sometimes the blocking would and the space itself would necessitate a new emotion for the scene. So, ah. you know, I came in sometimes expecting to go one direction, but then when we actually put Audrey and Stacy in the space uh, and just were there in the day that it was, whether it was colder than I was expecting or sunnier than I was expecting, sometimes the, the space really just, meant we had to change where we were going. And I think both of my actors and um, my director of photography really, really were able to ebb and flow naturally with our environment in just such a beautiful and wonderful way. That That is one thing I was very happy and lucky with. Um, one thing that was kind of at, at conflict on set is sometimes um, I'm not going to need name names because it got very acrimoniously and i can't get super specific they're very accurate <laughs> i can't get super specific because um you know you don't want to air that much dirty laundry that personally but there, there were some conflicts about just the way uh whether or not let's say a light was necessary in a certain in a certain spot at all um, right. and I'd be like, we don't need a light, get rid of the light. And somebody would be shining yeah. that light right in my face and be like, this is for 
the scene and also safety. And, you know, it's just the other. Wow. Yeah, it was pretty rough. The, the thing that I learned most, I think, from this is that if you're going to make an independent film, don't be the director and the producer, which I was. And th- you, you, need, yeah. you need a bad cop because if you're in producer mode, it's very hard to be in director mode. If you're in director mode, it's very hard to be in producer mode. And if you have to be doing hmm. both at the same time, the entire time, um, you will explode. You know, one really thing, one thing that's really interesting about this film that I imagine made it hard to shoot and hard to communicate to others, including editors and people on set, is that for some scenes... You're hearing the character's dialogue, you're seeing their faces, but they're not speaking the dialogue because the dialogue has taken place either a few minutes before or a short time later. And it's sort of up to the audience to decide when those conversations are taking place. You know that they're taking place in that general neighborhood of the scene that they're seeing, but you don't know exactly what had happened. It sort of asks a lot of the audience to sort of roll with that story. Um, is that a, Was that a problem that you had on set where people couldn't visualize it or couldn't visualized it or couldn't understand it the way that you understood it no um we we wrote we 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 wrote the script and the script was written in a way that we knew from the beginning conceptually that there were two timelines happening and sometimes you'd be you'd be on both timelines at at the same time and everybody kind of got that actually that didn't cause any problems conceptually um Everybody was like, oh, I, I, everyone was just super on board for that. And it also provided us a good amount of flexibility in post because we knew that there would be these stories and these times when Hannah and Esme would or either Hannah would be telling a story or there'd be a conversation and we'd be able to not only have two different timelines happening at the same time, but have like an emotion, two different emotional truths happening at the same time. And yeah. I think that's very prevalent in the child parent relationship is, you know, the way you can be experiencing, you know, I'm, I'm a relatively new father. My eldest is five now, almost six. And my youngest is two. (laughs) And just like uh, the way I'm experiencing something is very different than the way they're experiencing something. And we wanted to be able to have both happen at the same time on the screen sometimes. And uh, having the, the, the ability to show a moment where a mother and a daughter are just existing together and not talking, but then hearing a conversation from a related but different time juxtaposed with yeah. each other is it's a very satisfying device. It is because that's kind of how life is. I mean, the the conversation occurs for a few seconds and you think about it for, you know, days or years later. It's it's a really interesting technique that I haven't seen a lot of other places. Um, I don't know if I've seen it. I'm, I'm trying to cover my bases by saying I haven't seen it a lot of other places because I can't think of anywhere else I've seen it. I thought it was really unique and interesting. And you also not only recorded the dialogue before and then recorded dialogue during production, but you also had everyone go back in and re-record dialogue afterwards or record some dialogue afterwards? Yeah, there's one scene. there's one scene in particular that was actually written in the editing process. And it's a kind of linchpin of the film. Um, there was we weren't able to film the entire script. Um, there were there were about ten pages that I was never able to film that I really really wanted hmm. to film. Um, they weren't dialogue pa- uh, pages, but they were kind of these. I call it little pe- little person big landscape shots, and there was about hmm. there was about I don't know thirteen fifteen of them that we never filmed, and 
then when we came to post that we didn't have them, we had to make a very a big decision to change the aesthetic, visual aesthetic of the film completely in editing in that hmm. we didn't have as many big, big landscape little people shots. So it really became because it was going to be this juxtaposition of extreme close up and then little tiny people in these big landscapes. But then what we ended up having was these extreme close-ups and a lot of pretty close shots and so and then we have a couple big little big big landscape little people shots particularly the very ending shot was one of the ones that i had planned and just we had to get um Mm. but what it did is what it, it made those moments even more powerful but it also put us into this kind of like even though we're in the the wilderness with with these two characters you got a sense of claustrophobia and closeness that really just becomes unrelenting. And we, since we didn't have some of that, we actually opted to lean into it and make it even more claustrophobic and unrelenting. And it became much, much more tense um, as a piece than it originally was going to be. Um, It became much, much more tense and much, much more close claustrophobic and, um, really put the focus more on on the characters even more and um the scene that was made completely in post was actually completely completely little people big landscape and Mm. it's the baptism scene and Mm. things weren't working things weren't working things weren't working and then one of my editors emrys was like oh well, you know, I know we were going to ditch these little people, big landscape things, but what about putting this one in? And we then wrote the the scene together and brought the act, actors back in and they did the dialogue for that scene. And the movie really, it, it, it was feeling good, but it never felt complete until that, until that scene was, mm. was constructed. And then everything kind of fell into place after that in, in a really pleasing way. One question on a just how did you do it level. Um, what advice do you have for people who are recording outside and are sort of at the mercy of the elements, whether it's wind or water? I mean, because you are out in nature. You don't control being out in nature is quite it. lovely. Um, and it's mm-hmm. not and and if it's if it's crazy wind, then you gotta find a way to block the wind. But it's actually great. Um what's much harder were the freaking ATV joyriders that would every once in a while <laughs> go by because you just hear them for miles and miles and you can't just be like, Oh, they'll pass by. And then the city noise will cover it up. It's like, no, I'm hearing ATV Joe for like the, the 10 miles till he goes over the hill. Um, wow. I, I think one of the things conceptually is originally I didn't want any lavalier microphones at all. I wanted to do it all with, with shotgun microphones, but we ended up bringing some lavaliers, but most, I would say 80% of the film, we didn't use the lavaliers. We used 80% of the film is is shotgun microphone recording. So if you're going to be out in, in nature, get a nice shotgun microphone. And it's actually, in a lot of ways, a lot easier than an urban environment. Because really, the, yeah, because you don't have any as much competing noise. Like, don't jump in the water with your microphone. But like, if you're on a quiet lake, and that reflects sound really, really well. You could hear someone talking all the way on the other side of the lake and there isn't much competing. So when you turn your gain reel up, maybe you'll turn your insects up, but you're not going to be turning up traffic noise, generators, all that stuff. One thing that we had to be very careful of is we did not use a generator 
pretty much oh. almost at all. We were relying almost all on daylight and bounce, except for when we were in our interiors. And then we had to take our generator as low into the as far away and into the basement as possible um, because sound was just carrying so well. So we almost never we, we didn't use a lot of electricity in terms of for, for our lighting at all. And I think that was something that really helped well, when, when shooting in nature, nature, because if you do have that Jenny running, even if it's a little putt putt, um, unless you really, really think about it, it's just going to swallow up everything. Oh, how? The last thing is this isn't this isn't Esme related, but can you just talk about the podcast work that you're doing? Sure. You just got a huge award at Tribeca. Um, and I was hoping you could talk about that a little bit. Thanks. I'm very excited about it. Um <laughs> it's kind of a you know, like I said, I'm a sound designer and a mixer as well in my day job, and I also like to direct. And after making Esme My Love, um, and it got distribution, but uh, it, it's still just out there and it hasn't, you know, turned me into a bazillionaire. And while I'm waiting for my next opportunity, yet. Yet, uh, while I'm waiting for my next, uh, opportunity to direct something visual, um, because just on a personal level and on a financial level, I'm not going to be able to bootstrap another independent film. I'm going to want mm. to direct next. I'm going to want to have outside funding that makes my life a lot easier, um, I just wouldn't be able to make it through another one alive. I don't think, you know, it took seven years or so to complete this film and a lot of just emotional and financial and physical tolls. <laughs> but absolutely. But uh, until that, until that happens, uh, I'm, I've been working on a, a number of narrative podcasts that I've been directing. And what's nice is that you can, do all the stunts you can go to any location you can do anything you want in audio and it doesn't cost a million dollars because you and then if you're if you're if you're uh if you think about it and you use your sound libraries or you do some recordings you can take audiences anywhere in the universe really yeah. uh without a huge budget so um i've been working on some narrative podcast stuff the piece that one Tribeca for audio storytelling this year is called Aisha. And it's unfortunately particularly relevant right now. Um, mm. Ivy Aisha is, so I'm Jewish and mm. Aisha was a reaction to, Pas oh, wow. uh, Aisha was a reaction to Passover. Um, the Passover story being that the historically, the, the ancient, Jewish people were in bondage and oppressed and they ended up leaving oppression in Egypt after, you know, and, and, and getting away from slavery and oppression. And my daughter, um, asked me, well, what's happening in Israel now? And Ugh. just to be very straightforward, uh, the Israeli government is currently at war with, um, you know, Hamas, but they're, but from all their statements, they're at war with a they really feel like they're at war with an entire people and mm. it's kind of like a role reversal, right? You know, the, the Israeli, the Jew, Jewish Israeli government is oppressing, um, the Palestinian people very similar to the way that, that, uh, the Jewish people were themselves oppressed during, uh, Passover times. And, um, and so Aisha is a piece, um, that is told from the point of view of a young Palestinian girl who just, wants to live her life hmm. and um 
you can't it, it, it it's a very short thing and it i won't tell exactly what happens but it's a, it's a dream sequence about her finding a way to remove herself from the situation um there and um i think it it struck a lot of nerves um because this is a time when a lot of jewish people in america are standing up and saying look i uh, you know, as a Jewish person, there's this connection between me and Israel, but um, what the government is doing isn't necessarily right. And right now, in, a, in right now, while the the war has just started, the latest war, um, yeah. it's like I said, particularly relevant. It's it's very unfortunate, you know, and and unfortunately, the the whole war machine is is moving uh, in a way that. Um, I really don't think is going to be particularly good for anybody. You know, if somebody says, you know, you killed children, so we're going to go ahead and just obliterate a bunch of schools, <laughs> like, yeah. you know, because killing children is wrong. I mean, it's just, it makes no sense. So uh, that's what the piece I show is about. I think it struck a nerve. And unfortunately, um, you know this situation More relevant has, than ever. Yeah, unfortunately, this this situation has festered just so long. It's now back out in open warfare, and it's not going to be good for anybody.